Talk about little David. Said I, he's a mighty man. Said I, well he killed Goliath. Said I, took his head to King. Hello, 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 Learning Curve listeners. This is Kara Kandel coming to you with the fabulous Gerard Robinson. Gerard, how are you doing today? I'm doing well from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Always beautiful in Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm not going to lie. It's not beautiful here. It's like dark and kind of weird. And we got some snow that wasn't snow, so I couldn't even ski. So I'm grumpy, Gerard. I'm grumpy about the lack oh, of snow. Oh, you're grumpy. When you start off by saying dark and kind of creepy, I thought you were talking about your co-host. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my dear friend, Gerard, you just lay it all out there and just wait for me to try and pick that up, don't you? <laughs> oh, Which, of course, yeah. we know is all in good fun. All always a good. We have a little too much fun sometimes, actually, on this show. No, actually, despite the fact that it's rather gloomy here today, it was a pretty cool weekend in Boston, Gerard. I think it might have made the national news because I think I read about it in the national news this weekend. But as you may be aware, Boston has unveiled a new monument to Dr. Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King. And it is in the People's Garden, the first public garden in the country, the Boston Common. It is called the Embrace. And there were a lot of crowds trying to get to see the embrace this weekend. We snuck in and, and got a little bit of a glimpse, not as much as we would have liked, but it's really kind of cool. And I have to say it was wonderful to provoke conversation with my children around what they know about Dr. King's legacy. He was a graduate. As you know, Gerard, he did his PhD at Boston University, one of my alma maters. And I don't know, it was just, I thought it was a proud moment for the city. I know that there has, as I think Mayor Wu said this weekend, she is the mayor of Boston. She doesn't think there's much controversy in Boston, but there's been some national controversy over the monument because it had pretty hefty price tag. It is a beautiful, large bronze cast. I think it was actually made in Washington state and then shipped here piece by piece, but some controversy just over the fact of the price and could the money have been better spent but if you've ever spent time on Boston Common, Gerard, it's such a beautiful place and full of these kinds of monuments to our history. And I think it's just amazing that Dr. Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King will be now there on the Common for everybody to see from, from here forward. So I wanted to share that before we got into our stories of the week. I don't know, Gerard, did you read anything about this beautiful monument yourself this weekend? The sad thing is the controversy lit up Twitter, and therefore people retweeting or posting, I saw that before the good stuff. Oh, come so, on, man. That's why I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I so you guys are arguing about the price tag for this, and shall yeah. we talk about the price tag for the other people we've put up? I'm telling you, it's rare that I hear anyone bring up anything about price tag, even when it's tearing down a monument. So yeah. that was sad to see. But I was glad to see both of them honored. Because yeah. without her, I don't think you really have a Dr. King. She not only was a civil rights activist in her own right, uh, long before she met him, she was involved in civil rights work. But as Boston, as you know, is a, a big lover of the arts, and in this example, arts being the music, many people do not know that she was classically trained as yes. uh, a singer. And so she is adding not only that aspect to Boston, but uh, just a recognition of being a mother, a social entrepreneur. 
yeah. and a, a leader to both sides of the political fences for many decades after her husband's death. So glad to see the couple recognized as one because too often we only focus on one. Correct. And I think you're right. I think that what the monument really does is show how intimately intertwined these individuals were. And I think it suggests, as you do here, that Dr. King wouldn't have accomplished all that he did without without his wife, and he would not be the leader that we remember today. She was a leader in her own right for a very long time. It also got me thinking, Gerard, about another education-related issue that I have been reading so much about, some controversial. I've not been reading it on Twitter. Thank you very much. But you got me thinking because one, of course, kids, for example, my kids age, well, and even me, I wasn't alive at the time, right? Nor were you. One of the things that sticks with us historically are Dr. King's words, right? He was such a brilliant orator and writer, and his words are what we remember. We can listen to his story. We can read about his life, et cetera. But so many of us know the words that he spoke and that moved the nation. And words, my friend, now bear with this hard transition here, but there is a point have been in the news quite a bit lately with regard to higher education especially, which prompts a question here, Gerard. Now, be honest. Have you ever, like when you were a kid, did you ever plagiarize an essay or cheat in any way? Maybe take some liberties with somebody else's words? Yes. Writing your own? Yeah. I mean, come on. Let's all be honest, right? Oh, no. I just cheated. I wasn't a good writer in the first place. I just cheated across the board, but that's another story. I, yeah, well, okay. So I love that now that we are where we are in our careers and our lives that we could talk about this. But certainly I learned my lesson. I think I remember as early as elementary school, like cheating on a test and having to admit it and, and come to terms with it. But, but, you know, so right now in higher education, as I'm sure you've been reading, it's not just higher education, but this new technology, artificial intelligence, these chatbots, especially chat GPT has been getting a lot of attention, is really confounding so many in education, especially in higher education. And this is artificial intelligence that, you know, you can input information, words, subject area, and it will produce it. I mean, who knows, Gerard, it could have produced something along the lines of Dr. Martin Luther King's words and orations. I mean, this is some very serious technology. It can write poems based on just a few little inputs. It can answer questions. It can write essays on any assignment that you're given in higher education. And I have been, I have to tell you, this has been coming up in my daily newsfeed just every day for weeks. And I thought we need to talk about it ever so briefly now because we don't have a lot of time, but I'd love to have somebody on to talk about this. And the thing is, Gerard, is that you're sort of watching higher education professionals, professors and the like, divide into a couple of different camps to try and figure out what are we going to do about this? Because the ability to cheat, especially on college exams and essays, has been around forever, of course. Now, when I was an undergrad, you would just go to the place down the street. And if you were really desperate and you and your parents could send you money, you would pay 50 bucks to buy some essay that somebody wrote. You would try and make a few changes to it and you would probably get caught, right? But those services have always existed. This artificial intelligence is much more difficult for professors to detect. People are, are getting away with it. And so the two camps that higher ed officials and even some K-12 officials, New York Department of Education, for example, has banned this technology. They're falling into the camp that says, like, ban it or mm, 
can we sort of tepidly lean into it and figure out how to use this as a tool? Because I think some people are realizing if this is just the beginning of artificial intelligence that can write for us and speak for us, it's only going to get better from here. And we might be outsmarted by the robots, which is so like 2001 A Space Odyssey, like I'm kind of freaking out about it. But the camps are the beat it camp or the ban it camp. Professors are doing things like handwrite your essays in class. Like, can you imagine anymore? I I don't think anybody could read my handwriting at this point. I mean, a guy at the post office yelled at me that my handwriting was illegible. And they're signing fewer essays. They are putting it in the student handbook that this is plagiarism and, you know, will be detected. And of course, other tech companies are cashing in by creating their own AI to detect the chat GPI cheating AI. So it's going to be a whole new industry. Now, of course, part of this Bannett camp assumes, and this is coming from the former college professor in me, that the kind of writing we're teaching folks to do in college is actually the way people are going to write in the real world, the way people are going to write their jobs. I personally object to that. As a professor, I, I would get, I mean, I'm working on my own writing constantly and it needs work, but I would get essays where I would think, oh my goodness, if you give me another five paragraph essay, I just don't know what I'm going to do. I can't do it. Like formulaic, uninteresting writing is how we usually teach people to write. But this other camp that's saying, you know, we probably can't beat it. And this is the one that really interests me, Gerard, trying to think of creative solutions to use the AI. So a professor at Northern Michigan University that is quoted in this article that I'm referencing here from the New York Times, the title of the article is Alarmed by AI Chatbots, Universities Start Revamping How They Teach. But this Northern Michigan University, shout out to Marquette, professor is quoted as saying, you know, maybe we have the artificial intelligence produce pieces of writing that students critique, that they evaluate, that they analyze. You could see middle school teachers and high school teachers using that as a tool. What if you had kids sort of compete with the chatbot? Because there are ways to dupe it. It's not perfect yet, right? So it gets certain things wrong. It might even get certain like answers to essay questions wrong in some cases. So I raise it because I think it is a fascinating issue. It's of course going to probably plague higher ed a little bit more than it's going to plague K to 12. It's, you know, smaller children aren't going to have the kind of access to do these things, but high schoolers certainly will if they don't already. And I think that this is going to be something that is absolutely going to change the game, Gerard. And I am so curious to see where it goes. And like I said, simultaneously, it's like brilliant and super creepy all at the same time. So there, I've used creepy twice now in this podcast, but I'd love to know, Gerard, have you been reading about this? Have you been thinking about this? When you began to talk about your article, a book on my shelf popped to mind. I just pulled it off. It's titled Robot Proof. Higher Education in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. And it was published in 2017. And the author, and please forgive me if I mispronounced your last name, Joseph Aoun, A-O-U-N, who's the former president of Northeastern University in your neck of the woods. I picked up this book and it's probably at a conference where he was a speaker, at least I believe so, or one of his supporters were there. But it was a segment kind of focused on what you're talking about. This would have been 2016. And he was saying some of the same things you are, and he was talking about the same two camps. And as I began to hear you talk about it, I, I began to think about two things that he said. Number one, he said, in higher education, one thing that is constant is change, and that higher ed leaders need to find a way to prepare their students not only to work with AI, 
or what he called robotics, we use the term AI, but also to understand that we're going to have to compete with them as well. And competition in and of itself isn't a bad thing. So that's number one. Number two, he's a graduate of MIT before going to Northeastern. He was at the University of Southern California. California College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences, so he's a humanist, but in his work, he talked about the importance of creating a new scientific proof framework that he calls humanics, and that's the blending of what students and scholars and humans are doing in line with what the academy and what the AI is doing. So AI is something that's been on my radar for more than 20 years, going back to work by Alvin Toffler, I believe, and his wife on Future Shock. But in the last 10 years, more so, because I've gone to great conferences, higher ed and K-12, but a lot of higher ed, where they've talked about AI. So I don't know what camp I'm in. I may have a foot in both. Yeah. But what I do know is that we can make AI our friend, but trying to be agnostic will surely make it our enemy. Yeah. I mean, we have no choice. <laughs> I want to be friends with AI. They I'm are among of- us. Exactly. Exactly. What are, what are you thinking about this week? So my story of the week comes from a paper in Atlanta, Georgia. And as you know, we talk a great deal about K-12 and higher education. I read this article and it was a little different than what we discussed on our show in part because it's going into the philosophy and purpose of education. And so in reading the article, the author identifies a couple of points that I want to highlight and then put in context what that means from the aspect of workforce development. So the author said, quote, it seems to me that education has a twofold function to perform in the life of man and in society. One is utility and the other is culture. Education must enable a man to become more efficient, to achieve with increasing facility, the legitimate goals of life. And where he's saying man, I'm also going to say woman. So man and woman or human beings. And when I think about utility and culture and life, as the dad of three daughters, as a a former educator for the great students, as a current lecturer to graduate students, we're talking about efficiency and the goals of life. And what the author is saying that there's definitely a role for education as it's preparing people for life. So it reminded me of a really good report I read published by the Center on Education and the Workforce at Georgetown University. And the title of the report is The College Payoff. And there's a subtitle which the readers can go into. But what it shows is that if you have a high school diploma, you earn $1.6 million over your lifetime on average. Those with an associate's degree, we're looking at $2 million. Those who have a bachelor's degree, we're looking at 2.8. And then those who have a doctorate degree, we look at the medium of about 3.2 million. But in the report, it says that although the average high school graduate will earn 1.6 million over his or her lifetime, and we know that those with a bachelor's degree, at least according to the report, could earn 2.8, there are at least 25% of people who have a high school diploma who in fact make more than people with a bachelor's degree. And so what the report is really leading to, which is what the author is ultimately going to, is that when we think about the purpose of education, one thing is to go to college and some are going to get a high school diploma and directly go into the workforce. That's utility for them. That's culture and life expectancy. We've talked on this show about the importance of stackable degrees. And I've said, while well, I'd be fine if my children decide to go to college, I'd also be fine if they decided not to. So for me, when I read about utility, about culture, about life, 
That's just one example. And then the author goes further to get into the purpose of education, but really like hitting on some key points that are just so alive to our world today. The author said education must also train one for quick, resolute, and effective thinking, which is so true. Author also said to think incisively and to think of oneself is very difficult. Why? We are often prone to let our mental life become invalid by legions of half-truths, prejudices, and propaganda. At this point, I often wonder whether or not education is fulfilling its purpose. A great so many of the so-called educated people do not think logically and scientifically. Even the press, the classroom, the platform, and the pulpit, in many instances, do not give us objective and unbiased truths. To save man from the morass of propaganda, in my opinion, being the author's opinion, is one of the chief aims of education. Education must enable one to sift and weigh evidence, to discern true from the false, the real from the unreal, and fact from fiction. Why? Because the author says, and I quote, the most dangerous criminal may be the man gifted with reason, but with no morals. And so when I think about education, these are some very good philosophic, sometimes religious views on how to think about the purpose of education. And I decided to pick this article because it was written by an 18-year-old Morehouse student named Martin Luther King, who was at Morehouse in 1947, and he wrote this paper for the Maroon Tiger, which is the Morehouse newspaper. That was 76 years ago. And what he said about propaganda, about the press, about the media, the classroom, the pulpit, about the need to have education help us sift through what's fact, what's false, what's real news, what's fake news. I mean, that was just tremendous. And to celebrate his life, I wanted to read this article written in the January, February edition, 1947, called The Purpose of Education. Kara, I can tell you, when I was 18 years old, I was nowhere close to thinking about the purpose of education. <laughs> Me neither. Or even if I did, I didn't have the fluidity or the tenacity to even write something this good. What are your thoughts? I mean, I'm just sticking with the line, all of it sticks out, but the line that sticks so much is that the man, or as you said, person who might be most dangerous is one with intellect, but no morals. And in that the purpose of education, that education must help us separate fact from fiction. And I have to say that that, you know, in, in today's culture, that's also about like, let's all admit and agree that there is such a thing as fact, <laughs> that there are facts that we can objectively- here, here agree upon. And that's something that seems quite out of fashion and gives me pause. So those words are really, really resonate, Gerard, and are very moving. And, you know, I'm increasingly concerned, Gerard, not only about our political rhetoric, but we've talked about Twitter already here, about how many of us rely upon thinking, thinking that things like social media help us to understand facts. And I'm not talking about the pandemic and disagreements over COVID and stuff like that. I'm just talking about basic, like we need to live in an objective reality. And with the younger generation too, wow, I'm sorry, I'm going to sound really old here. This bent toward relativism in a really, really dangerous way, like everything's relative. Well, some things are, not everything is relative, right? Can be a really dangerous downward slope for humanity, period. And so thank you for highlighting this. And I'm just so curious to know a little bit more about this article. Well, the great thing about the learning curve is we always post on the page we're going to send on Wednesday a link to it. And you can find this link at a center at Stanford University, which is 
at least was until recently. Um, the chair of it was uh, Dr. Cleborne Carson, who's been a guest on our show, because Coretta Scott King donated all of Martin Luther King's papers to Stanford University, who created the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute. So you'll find it there. We'll have the link on our site. Phenomenal. And just so appropriate, Gerard, because as you know, coming up in just a moment here, we are going to be speaking with a foremost expert on Dr. Martin Luther King. We are going to be speaking with Professor David Garrow, and hopefully he's on the line with us, Gerard, and we are going to be right back to learn much more about this incredible person's legacy right after this. Learning Curve listeners, we're so pleased to welcome David Garrow. He was a professor of law and history and distinguished faculty scholar at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Previously, he taught at several noted colleges and universities, including Emory University, where he was presidential distinguished professor. Garrow is the author of Rising Star, The Making of Barack Obama, a 1,460-page presidential biography, a New York Times bestseller, and one of the Washington Post's 10 best books of 2017. He authored Bearing the Cross, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1986, which won the 1987 Pulitzer Prize in Biography and the seventh annual Robert F. Kennedy Book Award. Garrow is also the author of The FBI and Martin Luther King Jr. and Protest at Selma. He served as senior advisor for Eyes on the Prize, the award-winning PBS television history of the American Black freedom struggle, and as editorial advisor for the Library of America's two-volume Reporting Civil Rights. More recently, he was featured in the 2020 Emmy Award-nominated documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X?, and the 2021 Academy Awards Oscar shortlisted documentary, MLK FBI, which was based on his 1981 book and his 2002 update articles. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Nation, Newsweek, and Time. Garrow graduated magna cum laude from Wellesleyan University and received his PhD from Duke University. What a bio. Professor David Garrow, welcome to The Learning Curve. Oh, thank you. Oh, we're so pleased to have you and, and such wonderful timing, too. At the outset of the show, Gerard and I were discussing the establishment of a new monument here to Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King here on the Boston Common. And we've been celebrating all weekend the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You have written and spoken about how it's important to remember that first and foremost, he was a Baptist pastor. Can you share with us about his role as a young spiritual leader and preacher, certainly in Montgomery, Alabama, a wonderful city, which he rose during the mostly famous female-led bus boycott in 55 and 56. Can you talk a little bit about his role? Dr. King grew up in the Black church. His family church in Atlanta, Ebenezer Baptist, was the family business and had been the family business going back to his grandfather. And so he, as a you know young man, teenager, initially resisted the idea of becoming a minister. And then as Lerone Martin, who, who now is head of the King Papers Project at Stanford, as Lerone Martin has, has emphasized and, and will really detail in a, in a forthcoming book, it was some summer experiences in Connecticut where black college students would go and work on tobacco farms. This is in the mid 1940s that King sort of slipped into the role of being 
faith leader for this group of young black students in rural Connecticut outside of, of Hartford. And so King knew by the time he graduated college at Morehouse in Atlanta in 1948 that he wanted to pursue the ministry, yet he wanted to be a more educated preacher than his dad. And so he went first to seminary at Crozer in then in eastern Pennsylvania, and then went to Boston University for a PhD in, in theology. So in 1955, when he's there in Montgomery, he has had not only the life experience of growing up in the Southern Black Baptist Church, but he's also had a, a really first-rate theological education. He sure did. Boston University, also where I did my doctoral work. It's always you know, such a wonderful connection here to here to the city. So you've mentioned his desire to be a more educated pastor than his dad, you say. And, and certainly Dr. King in his life, which was too short, learned a lot of important lessons about organizing and preaching. Now, in the 50s, he co-founded the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and he also played a secondary role in the Freedom Rides. Now, the SCLC, its efforts weren't always successful. You can point to places like Albany, Georgia. Could you discuss this period of his life as well as what he learned from these experiences, specifically with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference? The idea of SCLC as a Southwide activist organization based in Black church congregations grew directly out of the success of the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955-1956. The initiative to start the Montgomery bus boycott came from the Black women of Montgomery. They had been protesting the treatment of Black riders on the public buses for several years before Mrs. Rosa Parks's famous arrest that is what led Professor Joanne Robinson, the head of, of the women's group in Black Montgomery, to initiate the actual boycott. Dr. King got drafted as the number one spokesperson for the boycott because as a Black minister, he was economically in a safer position than someone like Professor Robinson, who taught at Alabama, what was then Alabama State College, black school, but totally under the thumb of the white government. The Montgomery boycott was a phenomenal success, lasting more than 12 months, totally unifying black Montgomery. But it was Dr. King's New York City advisors, who he had accumulated in the course of 1956, who really had the idea for SCLC. First and foremost, Bayard Rustin, who's now much well better known than was the case 25 or 30 years ago, pioneering openly gay Black activist. And being openly gay was always an unspoken issue within the, the Southern Black church of having a gay man in an influential role with King. Miss Ella Baker, a longtime activist who should be better known than she is. There's an excellent biography of her by Barbara Ransby. And then also Stanley Levison, white Jewish former Communist Party insider who put the CPUSA behind him and realized the importance of Dr. King and the Southern movement. 
So they, in combination with Dr. King and the Alabama pastors, King's best friend, Ralph Abernathy, Fred Shuttlesworth, a phenomenally courageous minister from Birmingham, it's the combination of those New Yorkers and the Southern pastors that create SCLC. But as you mentioned, SCLC in its first three or four years didn't really get its act together. And it was the black college student protesters who kicked off the sit-in movement in the spring of 1960 that really revived the Southern movement. And then a year later, when the Congress of Racial Equality organized the sit-ins to protest segregated situations on interstate bus facilities, which were supposed to be desegregated by that point, the sit-ins and the freedom rides are what really sort of kick off the Black freedom struggle of the 1960s across the Deep South. And of course, it's Birmingham, Alabama that we learn most about in school, right? I have three young children, and I'm always curious to hear what they're learning in school around Martin Luther King Day. And sometimes I think the schools get it right and sometimes not so right, correct? (laughs) So talk a little bit about, as somebody who's thought so deeply about this, what do you think it is that students and teachers should know about MLK in Birmingham about the Reverend Shuttlesworth, and specifically the famous letter so often read in schools, Letter from a Birmingham Jail. The most important thing to appreciate about Dr. King is that neither in Montgomery nor in the early 60s when he's summoned down to Albany in southwest Georgia, where a a locally initiated protest movement had gotten underway, Dr. King had no desire to be a leader to be a famous figure. He got drafted in Montgomery and rather reluctantly accepted that role that he'd been pushed into. And then when the students, when CORE, when the local activists in Albany get things started, he's asked to come in and help. And he feels obligated to give of himself. He has a very self-sacrificial understanding of himself. He would have been happier just to remain a pastor, do some college teaching. But Birmingham in particular was what really elevated the Southern civil rights struggle to the front pages of U.S. newspapers day after day after day. And that was because of of the courage and commitment of Fred Shuttlesworth and the other Birmingham activists A majority of the Birmingham protest participants in May of 1963 were young people, sometimes high school or even junior high school students. The extent to which young people made up the movement, not not just college students with the sit-ins, is something that I think often gets completely overlooked in an excessive focus on Dr. King and other men wearing suits and ties. But Birmingham was what really forced President John Kennedy and his brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, to embrace the civil rights movement for the first time. Up until May of 1963, the Kennedy administration had been trying to keep the civil rights struggle on a back burner. And it was the commitment of the Southern movement that forced the Kennedy's hand and led very directly to the introduction of what a year later became the landmark uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964. It was so great to hear you talk about King's 
decision to become a pastor in part that he, because he wanted to be an educated pastor. And I think about role models like Benjamin E. Mays and uh, Howard Thurman, who was at Boston University, who played a tremendous role. And so for educators and young people, realize that Dr. King did not just grow out of the earth. It took educators to play a role. Well, when you think of Dr. King, often we celebrate him. We think of the 1963 I Have a Dream speech delivered in front of Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., in fact, where my mother-in-law and her dad were actually present. And we also think to a different extent about his winning the Nobel Prize in 1964. Could you talk to our listeners about these events and maybe some unknown things that led to him rising to those two positions to make it happen? The I Have a Dream speech as delivered on, on August 28, 63, was in majority part an advanced text, a written text that King had actually prepared, which was quite unusual for him. But the summation of that speech was completely extemporaneous. But it wasn't only extemporaneous, it also directly echoed very, very similar remarks he'd used twice in the past at a rally in Detroit, Michigan, two months earlier in June of 63. And then for the first time that we know of in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, back in November of 1962, my colleague Jason Miller of North Carolina State discovered that tape recording only a few years ago. If anyone uh, does a web search for Jason Miller and Martin Luther King, it'll take you to that 1962 recording. And that, this is a great example of how King as a speaker had this sort of mental library of stories, quotations, biblical passages that he had, in effect, memorized going back even before Montgomery. And so he had this sort of spontaneous verbal library that he would absorb, use, move around. Jason and, and our additional MLK colleague, Keith Miller of Arizona State, the two Miller professors have done the best work of explaining King's preaching sources and his use of, of poetics. King is often, for example, using language from Langston Hughes, not something that a historian like me who has no background in African-American poetry would hear, but it's something that Jason Miller and Keith Miller can hear. And King's most powerful orations Leaving aside I Have a Dream, to my mind, were his sermons at Ebenezer Baptist, his home church, after he moved back to Atlanta from Montgomery in early 1960. Because when King is preaching at Ebenezer, as we touched on earlier, the members of that congregation had known him since he was literally a toddler. And so he has a degree of relaxation, of comfort in those Ebenezer sermons that you don't quite see the equal of either in his civil rights orations or if he's speaking to some church audience in Chicago or Philadelphia. Speaking about his memory and just the reservoir he could pull from, a lot of history, philosophy, poetics we could find, and I've been to the mountaintop. And it was delivered in Memphis, Tennessee, where he was there to support striking sanitation workers. That was a part of a broader Poor People's Campaign that SDLC and MLK launched in 67, 68. I've listened to that speech many times at tears, even to this day, come down when you listen to it, just for what he had to say. Tell our listeners about the meaning and the ethos of that. 
That mountaintop speech on April 3rd in Memphis is one of a number of very emotional and emotionally drained, I'm purposely saying drained rather than draining, speeches King gives, particularly in the years after 1965. And it's important for everyone to realize that King, going right back to 1956 in Montgomery, was repeatedly confronted by the certainty, the reality of his own death, because there were so many threats and serious threats. As some people may remember, he was stabbed in the chest almost fatally in Harlem, New York, in the late 50s by a lady who was mentally ill. And so King had come to a realization. He tells a film producer on one occasion who's thinking about doing a film about him, you know, how does the movie end? And King says to this fellow, it ends with me getting killed. And so that reality was always with him. And he would express it when he was most drained most exhausted, most depressed. And it's a painful aspect of all the FBI surveillance directed at him from 1963 onward that we can see through those telephone wiretaps what a significant emotional toll Dr. King's public role took on his private life. And that's especially true in 1967, 1968, when his very outspoken early criticism of the Vietnam War at a time when opposition to the Vietnam War was not respectable among liberal Democrats, both with Vietnam and with announcing the Poor People's Campaign for the spring of 68, King was quite knowingly, purposely undertaking challenges that he knew would harm his own popularity. Yet he had such a strong belief in preaching the truth, irrespective of whether it was going to be popular or not. And that degree of commitment, of courage, of self-sacrifice is the number one thing that, that people should understand about Dr. King's life. Here's the last question before we have you read a passage of your choice. King often talked about saving the soul of America and even use some of the founding documents to make the point. We're at a point in our nation's history where people are just questioning, do we even have a soul? What are some ideas that we can take away as we think about King and we think about the soul of America using him as a template for the future? King was deeply committed to giving of himself to others. Again, the FBI wiretap transcripts are a very powerful, surprising source of how utterly selfless he was, that he didn't want more honors. When Time Magazine names him, you know, man of the year, as they called it back then for, for 1963, he remarks to Stanley Levison, you know, what's one more award, one more plaque? And when he receives the 1964 Nobel Peace Prize, he feels that's such an excessive individual honor that it makes him commit himself to giving of himself even more so. And the Nobel Prize is a clear motivator for his feeling that he cannot avoid confronting U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam and, and the other countries there. 
And so it's that willingness to sacrifice himself that I think is really a timeless message of personal courage, something we see in the world today on a daily basis in Ukraine. Thank you so much for that, Professor Garrow. We were wondering, just to close us out here, if you wouldn't mind reading one a, a passage of your choosing from your book, Bearing the Cross. No, certainly. This is the final paragraph of BTC in the one-page epilogue, page 625. And it begins by quoting Miss Ella Baker, whom I mentioned earlier, one of the three real co-founders of SCLC. Ella Baker aptly articulates the most crucial point, the central fact of his life, which Martin King realized from December 5, 1955, in Montgomery, until April 4th in Memphis. Quote, the movement made Martin rather than Martin making the movement, unquote. As Diane Nash, who is an important leader of SNCC, and Diane is still with us well into her 80s, as Diane Nash says, quote, if people think that it was Martin Luther King's movement, then today they, young people, are more likely to say, gosh, I wish we had a Martin Luther King here today to lead us. If people knew how that movement started, then the question they would ask themselves is, what can I do, unquote. They're really wonderful words to leave us with, and I hope that we have younger folks out there listening to this as well, everything from talking about his commitment to the truth to the idea that we all need to ask what I can do is, I think, a really important takeaways for us. Learning Curve listeners, this has been Professor David Garrow. Professor Garrow, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. And for your work, we appreciate you. Thank you. Always close it out with our tweet of the week. This one from friend of the show, Andrew Rotherham. I like this. It's a edgy wonk is so much fun. So the tweet is 2022 was about quiet quitting and 2023 is about quiet use of the SAT. And then this links to a wonderful list on Edgewonk, a blog that I'm sure some of our listeners read. And if they don't, you should absolutely check it out. And it's one of these, like, you know, I don't know who would do this, People Magazine. It's like Edgewonk's What's In and What's Out list. So I'm going to give you just a couple. <laughs> one is very pertinent to my story of the week. What's out? Students don't write enough in school. What's in? AI writes too much in school. What's out? Wishful thinking on academic recovery after COVID. What's in? Wishful thinking on school enrollment after COVID. <laughs> Let's see. What's another one? Reading wars are out and the science of reading wars are in. So those are just a few. Very tongue in cheek. A lot of truth in there, too. I would highly recommend this blog to our listeners. And next week, Gerard, we are going to be speaking with somebody who I think you know very well. I've had the honor of meeting just a couple times. We're going to be speaking with Kevin Chavis. He is the president of Stride K-12, Inc., and former member of the Council of the District of Columbia. I am. Well, I look forward to all of our conversations, but I'm certainly looking forward to that one as well. Until then, Gerard, I will write you a essay and send it to you over the weekend for you to grade, and it definitely won't have any artificial intelligence involved. Got it. Yeah, and I will use good. my robotic proof eyes to do what I can. Just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to pull one over on you. You wait and see. All right. You take care, Jeremy. Bye-bye.